Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast. Well, we're back again, and this is uh, Benjamin Nolo. I'm with my colleague, Lila Micklewait, and uh, we are so excited about today's podcast because we have a special guest with us. So this is uh, our first time having a guest on this podcast, and uh, I think it's really appropriate that we're having uh, Melissa Farley join us uh, as our first guest because of uh, her pioneering work in this uh, whole issue that we've been talking about um, since we started this podcast. And which is related to prostitution, the commercial sex industry, um, and all that goes with that. And so, uh, so Melissa, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Yes, we <laughs> we go back a few years, don't we? We do, and the, your the two of us, your work and your research, and just your kind of personal mentorship has been so formative for myself for Lila, for us at Exodus Cry, and I know for so many people in the um, anti-trafficking movement. Um, and so we're just, it's just such an honor and, and we're just so grateful for you to be with us uh, on this podcast. And I would add it's Dr. Melissa Farley. Okay, yeah. okay. I sometimes, I sometimes forget that because she's become a friend. Yes. Yeah, she's been yeah. so generous with her time with us that she's become yeah, more of a has. friend, so sometimes I forget to refer to her as doctor. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. But thank you, and um, I appreciate the work you're doing, both of you, very much, and... Um, Glad we're working together on this. Absolutely. The more, the better. Absolutely. <laughs> and Melissa, as we get into this, um, I'm sure people are going to want to, uh, people who are listening are going to want to figure out where they can get more information um, from you because you have just so much rich and deep insight into this whole subject matter. So for anyone who would like to pursue digging deeper into all the work that Melissa has been doing, um, you can go to prostitu- prostitution research uh, and education dot com. Dot com. Okay, so is it pre dot com or what's the actual URL? <clears throat> it's www prostitution research all one word dot com. Okay, okay. And or if you just uh, put in Google prostitution research and education, that's the name of the nonprofit. And we're celebrating 20 years this wow. year. We've been a, wow. we've been going for 20 years. Wow! And we have an extensive website that's. I, I hasten to say, not just the work of Pre, uh, the nonprofit, and me, but it's also the work of many, many other people. There's some amazing research coming out in the last five to eight years. That's really important for abolitionists to wow. know about. You know? Wow. Really good stuff. When when people give you the common myths that are out there like it's a it's a good job, you make a lot of money, the women in it are voluntary, how do you argue those points? Yeah. Right. You you can't right. just fall back to but it's horrible. It hurts right. people. Right. I mean, as true as that is, and as much as that is often a starting place for people, we have to know the facts to argue 
the abolitionist perspective. Absolutely. I mean, just as one little example, one of the studies we've got up on our website, which is only two or three pages long, is just a knockout study of five countries where they interviewed a thousand men in each country, and they're from several different continents. And what did they find? They found that any man who had ever bought a person for sex was statistically more likely to rape somebody in the broader culture. Oh, wow. Now, that's so important to know, because you hear this argument, I just heard it the other day, that prostitution decreases rape. And it's it's so so inaccurate, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So important. I know your website has been just a treasure trove Absolutely. of information for me. It's like the ammunition in my gun. Yeah. When I go out to try to you know talk to legislators about reform or just in so many different contexts, I've used your website, the research that you've done personally, and then also just the other papers and things that you have on your website. So I highly encourage... Yeah, go to her website yeah. and check it out. Because when we when I was uh, on the journey of filming Nefarious, you know, we didn't know where to start. We didn't know what doors to knock on. We were so new to all of this, and it was everything just kind of coming at us all at once. And we really needed to find our bearings. We Like Melissa said, we needed more than just, you know, our own emotional reactions to to this injustice we, we we really needed the deeper research to qualify some of our conclusions and our findings and so her website melissa's website prostitutionresearch.com became for us like a really uh guiding uh resource it it it, it guided um, a lot of our our thoughts, our process, um, the forming and shaping of, of the film. Her, her website is quoted numerous times uh, in the film. Melissa interviewed with us for Nefarious, and I know that many of you who are tracking with us have seen our documentary Nefarious, Merchant of Souls. Melissa had a huge voice in that film and was part of the backbone of helping to, to build an understanding of all these issues in the film. And so, um, so, so check out her website, prostitutionresearch.com. Um, I'll say one more thing on that. Um, what, what I really appreciate about Melissa is not just her educational background, her personal expertise, and, um, and her, you know, uh, her, her professional excellence in the realm of research. It's, um, it's also that she approaches it through an empathetic disposition. And so there's, you can tell in all of her research that there's, there's a, deep, uh, a deeper understanding. She's not just taking things at face value and trying to perpetuate, you know, whatever the politically correct thing is to say about these issues, but she's really trying to listen and she's trying to hear and she's trying to see the deeper truth. And then she's applying the most aggressive research tactics possible to do that, to get the most... Um, the best possible research. And so many people in the anti-trafficking movement don't value enough the the work that Melissa has pioneered. And not just in the anti-trafficking movement, but people who are financial donors. You know, you often hear talk about, well, 
where's there's a safe house that I can, are you doing, do you have a safe house and, or do you have, are you, are you helping the girls or, you know, but not many people are going around saying, where's a researcher that I can support. But I would say that what Melissa has contributed to this whole issue is so foundational, so pioneering and formative to the whole movement that we all are mm-hmm. indebted to her. And so um, Exodus Cry, we like to support Melissa and we need to do it more. I'm actually feeling convicted right now as I say that because we need to do it more. And, um, and we want other anti-trafficking organizations to do that because it's not just the donors out there who should be supporting Melissa, it's actually other anti-trafficking organizations. We're all indebted to her because like I said, that work oftentimes gets overlooked and underfunded, mm-hmm. but what she's providing is so valuable. And we so, couldn't do the no, work that we, we do, do without no. we the work that Melissa's doing. Written the resource we've done. we couldn't have made nefarious. I mean, just what she's doing is so foundational to all these other things that are happening. And so this isn't really a direction that I planned on going on, but I just kind of came to my mind as we jumped on with you, Melissa. And so we just want to say it again. We're so grateful for you. And to all our listeners, we hope that you will check out her website, that you will support her work. And, um, and we're going to dig into now a deeper conversation about um, this whole issue of the commercial sex industry. And um, Melissa, Lila and I have been talking about this for the past number of weeks, actually a couple of months now. And, um, and so we've been just really interested to kind of bring your insights and perspective into this conversation about the commercial sex industry. And I think to start out, what I would like to do is get your insight into um, prostitution as a form of slavery. When we started this podcast, one of the early podcast uh episodes that we did um, highlighted the fact that um, the work of William Wilberforce to abolish slavery was was deeply knit to his strategic efforts to shift mindsets in society about slavery because so much of society at that time had completely uh, adopted and assimilated assimilated sort of this this acceptance of slavery as just a part of society and and so whether people you know overtly and tacitly promoted slavery or whether they just passively accepted it virtually all of society tolerated it and so um so the work of wilberforce was really to shift those mindsets and help people see the deeper truth that in fact slavery was not a good institution that in fact the 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 passage of um, across the the middle passage was not filled with you know dancing and these jovial experiences for the slaves, but he brought forth the deeper truth, the palpable injustice that slavery was, helped redefine it in his generation in a way that paved the way for its abolition, and the world's never been quite the same since. And so, um, so what Lila and I have been talking about is how that you know fast forward these 150 years or whatever it's been, we now live in a time where this commercial sex industry has exploded across the globe and it's really exposing the fact that part of the reason that that has happened is because like it was during the time of Wilberforce's day, as a society, we have accepted all of these myths about prostitution. We have accepted this cover narrative promoted by the um, sex industry and the pro-sex work movement that you know, defines prostitution in these really deceptive ways. And so, um, so 
if you could help us maybe understand from your perspective um, this issue of how slavery, how prostitution um, operates as kind of a form of slavery. I know you've you've written about this, and um, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on that because um, people, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to define in and define out worthy versus unworthy victims. So they say, well, you have your trafficking victims, but then you have your people who have chosen it willingly. And what Lila and I have been trying to do is trying to um, dissolve that those kind of that kind of those distinctions and just to look at the system of prostitution as it operates as an industry and say actually apart from how somebody gets into it it's the way that the whole system of prostitution functions and operates that makes it incredibly concerning disturbing alarming um, and you know that we as a society really need to reconsider the way that we've defined and understood this industry. And so, could yeah, you talk I, to us? I mean, yeah, go ahead sorry. and jump in. Okay, um, just to go back to the issue of myths, which it's a word I've used a lot. However, I think in this era, in this time in history, when we're looking at tweets that are full of lies by people who are in, char in the highest office in the United States, when we're looking at tweets that say something that is has been called alternate facts, we have to call a lie a lie where we see it. Because, and, and believe me, I, as well as so many people I know, we would rather use a softer word. Um, but there are facts out there. There's, there is a reality out there of the sex trade, <clears throat> and then there are lies about it. Just take that one particular lie that most prostitution is voluntary with the sub-lie that, um, and, and yes, there's a small group, they, the other side says, there's a small group of people, children, or people with a gun to their head, or people who've been kidnapped. Uh, yes, 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 we have to stop that. But it's not fair to ask us, they say, to shut down the whole sex trade, which you people are trying to do. Now, the facts are that the experts on this First of all, survivors. When I started Absolutely. this out, yeah, I mean, that has to be front and center of any research, of any agency, uh, of any board that operates in the field of trafficking. You have to have survivors as an integral part of any organization working on this issue because they are our reality check. And that's how I learned so good. what I learned. I mean, the first hundreds of interviews that I did I, uh, with colleagues in nine different countries, we asked the question again and again of, of, of people in prostitution and people exiting prostitution, do you want to get out? And they looked at us like we were idiots. 
because the question is irrelevant to them. Of course they wanted out, and of course they Mm. were there because a lack of options, a Mm. lack of alternatives, very, very often a lack of housing every place in the world. Mm. Uh, Now, I want to say this to anybody who's interested. If you want to be an anti-trafficking activist in the in the United States and many other places, but let's just talk the U.S. right now. If you want to be an anti-trafficking activist in the U.S., be a housing-for-everyone activist. Mm. That's anti-trafficking work at the ground survival level. That's urgently needed. Mm. You know, uh, where I live in San Francisco, they're growing numbers. Right now we're having a series of storms that I'm sure you all in the Midwest would laugh about. We whine about it. It's a bunch of rain. But it's cold. <laughs> it, you know, it's cold and it's wet and it permeates people's bones and it doesn't feel good to be laying in a in a half-wet sleeping bag on concrete. If you've mm. never done it, I suggest you try it to understand what it is. Mm. It's, it's an awful, uh, a very uncomfortable, and for women, very frightening experience to be homeless. So that is anti-trafficking activism, because mm. 75% of the time, homelessness and prostitution go together in the U.S. and elsewhere. So that's just to say that there are so many areas where people can learn how to make an impact to affect the lives of people that they're trying to improve. Um, So, but to answer, again, to get back to that question... To, how do maybe, you respond maybe, to let me um let me frame that question a little better i don't think i framed it quite well enough um so what i'm what, so what lila and i have been addressing is what we refer to as the sex industry cover narrative that's mm-hmm. the narrative promoted by the pro sex work movement that is an aggressive movement with a clear agenda to both normalize and legalize pr- prostitution in our society and throughout our world. And so as we've been addressing much of what is said about prostitution, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to convey, hey, here's here's here are here's the narrative that is being spun and then but here's the deeper truth and the deeper reality. And so one of those things that we've been addressing is just simply how do we how should we understand prostitution? How should we define it? How do we understand the prostitution experience? And if you listen well, to... Okay, that's a really good question. And that is an important place to start. How do you define prostitution? So anyone new to our movement has to know what it is, know what it looks like. That means you go to a strip club or you check out a massage parlor. I can't believe how many people have never done that, have never looked at where it operates. And, uh, Benjamin, I know you have done that in ways that most people haven't, and I'm very grateful for it. I've learned from listening to you on what your experiences have been. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, 
it's crucially important. So you you start by defining prostitution by looking at it in a way that isn't intrusive or humiliating to the people in it. And that means you treat them with respect. You, As you say, you listen to them, and you learn from them, and you thank them for teaching you. Mm-hmm. And if you're asking them to be on a panel at your church or at your agency, you pay them a reasonable honorarium. You don't expect somebody to just take hours of their time getting there, preparing their speech, giving it, and answering questions. It's grueling for survivors to speak in front of audiences who often don't quite get it and also don't ask the policy questions of survivors, which they are frequently um, also expert at suggesting what works and what does not work. So, sorry, I'm not, I, I want to get back to what is prostitution. <clears throat> so you, you learn from survivors. These are all, every... the points that you're making, though, I think are, you know, I think these are all really relevant points because um, you've reached <laughs> a point of such maturity in your understanding of the issues and the movement that what you carry, we need to learn from. And, you know, I often see survivors posting things on Facebook, like ways that they were slighted by this organization or that organization. And it, we, it shouldn't be that survivors would have to fight for themselves, speak up for themselves along these lines. And, um, and like you said, I mean, I've learned everything, you know, between yourself and survivors. That's really where all my, you know, understanding has come from. And it's it's helpful even for me to hear it again that how we need to not only listen to survivors but take care of them when we ask them to participate in things that we're doing. So I really it's, value what I, you're I mean, saying I on that point. Okay, thanks. And I'm glad you get it. I'm glad I get it. And many people don't. I, I cannot tell you the arguments I've gotten into with major donors who somehow expect survivors to show up at their meeting. They might pay them transportation, oh. but they don't. They, they fail to realize that these are people who, because of the extensive trauma they've been through, because of the gaps in their job history, they, they don't have secure economic uh, situation in this day and age. And... Anything we can do. I mean, for example, another thing I would suggest is if you are impressed with the analysis and the delivery and the impact and the power that a survivor has in a given gathering, consider um, uh, just consider seeing if you or your network knows of anyone who has a job she might be interested in mm. or whether there's a public health agency that might want to hire a prostitution survivor advocate really in their agency. Just a thought. Just, no, just really see if you thought. can think long-term rather than yeah. the end of the panel, you know? Right, right. That's a really good so, thought. Let me just say something real quick um, as we get into this for our, for our listeners. We normally uh, keep our podcast to 20 minutes, 
And I think that's a pattern that we'll continue with as Lila and I lead the conversation. But since we have a special guest with us today, we're going to extend this podcast. This is going to be a longer podcast. So I want to encourage our listeners to, if you need to, um, you know, press pause on this and come back to it later, or go ahead and uh, brew up another coffee and uh, sit back and, and enjoy the podcast because we're going to go for a little while with this one. So, Melissa, um, thanks for your thoughts on that. And I know um, all my survivor friends will definitely appreciate that. And um, hopefully our listeners will as well. Um, let's, so let's talk about this issue of, you know, we're being told in our world a certain narrative about prostitution. Most of society has fully bought into that. And in, in, in anti-trafficking context, I've been in just in the past few days, I've had multiple people tell me, um, and they didn't tell me to in some kind of combative, argumentative way, but told it to me as like a matter of fact, like as though I would agree with them about this person in prostitution who's empowered, this person in prostitution who's well taken care of. Um, and so I would say even in the anti-trafficking movement, um, there are many people out there who have fully bought into the narrative of the commercial sex industry and still have this idea that there are people who are in prostitution who are empowered and have this idea that there are in people in prostitution who are, you know, well taken care of. And, and I think it's just this fundamental disconnect about how do we even define prostitution in the first place? How do we understand the actual prostitution transaction, the actual prostitution experience? Because I feel like part of what we need to do is to help people reconstruct their understanding of prostitution in a way that gets rid of all these exceptions that allows them to accept you know, at some level, prostitution, while continuing to fight sex trafficking. Okay, now here's the argument that some people use to counteract this notion that there are some empowered people. When Wilberforce and Douglas were fighting slavery, they did not advocate only rescuing the people in the fields who were getting beaten and whipped and worked to death, they advocated ending the institution of slavery. They didn't run around picking out Come on. just the children to save oh. or just the people. Come on. <laughs> no, this is good. Keep they going. They weren't saving just the children and leaving their moms and dads behind. No. They were trying to abolish the institution, mm. and they did it. And it's the same with the sex trade. If you spend all your time trying to carve out some group of people that you're going to hand off to the pimps, then you're not going to end the trade. They are going to come up with cover narratives, lies, uh that say these people are empowered, yes, those poor children are harmed, but their mothers really like it and are empowered. Are you kidding me? Mm. No, that's not how it works. How would it have been if the anti-slavery abolitionists tried to save just the field slaves and not the house slaves? And by the way, as you all know, um, in the last maybe 75 years, what's come out about slavery is that the house slaves 
the women, were the ones that were raped the most. Mm. And they were called mistresses in the history textbooks for a long time. So interesting. Yeah. So you don't decide. Plus, I have spoken to women who said they would rather do, I'm going to, you're going to have to edit this. I'm just going to talk and then you can decide if I I have to say it some different way. Okay. (laughs) No, we're going to keep it raw. We want to hear everything you have to say. So just go for it. Well, women have said to me they would rather do a five minute blow job in the car than to be purchased by an entitled, arrogant, rich man and spend two hours in the Hyatt Regency servicing him, kissing up to him, acting like a slave with Mm. him for an extended period of time, while all the time talking about politics and his job and the world and acting like she likes it. The emotional burden of that is overwhelming to them, as it would be to any of us listening. It's horrible to have to lie about everything you believe in to tell somebody you really like the romantic encounter on silk mm. sheets. That it's more, it's more accurate. Uh, I mean, it's cruder and simpler, and it's less money, but it's much easier for people to do four or five blowjobs for X amount of money than to spend two hours with a guy who's very rich and very entitled. And I should add, often far more abusive than Mm. that five-minute John in the car. That's such a great point. And I I don't know that I've actually ever put those dots together the way that you're explaining it, because um, what I think is powerful about it is that Oftentimes, people have this impression that, yeah, you know, the prostitution that happens out in the street where a girl gets mm-hmm. picked up in a car, that type of thing, well, that must be awful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the girl in the, that's that's in the high-end, you know, hotel with the satin sheets and, you know, the champagne and all of that, well, how can you define that as a negative experience? But what you're bringing out is this idea that women in those positions have to do far more acting which involves far more psychological gymnastics in order to function and operate in that capacity. And I don't it's, know it's that I've ever thought about gymnastics. the distinctions in that it's way. That is powerful. It's a betrayal of the self Whoa! That, that they are required to do. Whoa. And it can't be superficial. It has to be believable. It's a betrayal of the self. That Absolutely. totally blows out of the water that that oh that, that lie that says that you that know street prostitution intense. is so abusive and harmful, but you know there's the happy hookers that are in those high class Las Vegas brothels that are just fine and happy and empowered and making money and all of that. I mean, there was a special on CNN by Lisa Ling. I don't know if you saw it, Melissa. I did. Did you yeah. see that? And yeah. just the way that she. Portray it was like a commercial for the Bunny Ranch, basically. Uh, what I mean, did you don't think about get that? me going about the Bunny Ranch. I've been in a room with Dennis Hoff, uh, a room with a closed door with Dennis Hoff and two of his 
male assistants and um and he's the you know, owner the, he, the bunny who no, you're referring sorry. to dennis hoff he's the, the owner of the bunny ranch the pimp the pimp yeah the the chief yeah. pimp yeah he's a legal pimp legal chief executive pimp pimp so what happened so what happened when uh, you're in this room with them well, it was extremely intimidating. Okay, so they were trying to intimidate you. I mean, you want to talk about just a mini itsy-bitsy betrayal of self? I smiled and agreed with everything he said. Why? I was physically afraid. They closed a huge grate out in the parking lot, keeping you know, my car on the other side of the grate, uh, of the grated gate, and... Um, I was in a small room, small back room, closed. They could do anything they wanted with me. I wow. made a mistake. I was there wow. by myself. Wow. But, um, that's a frightening situation to be in. Yeah, me, and that's just a tiny, itsy-bitsy right, piece right. Of, what, of what women These girls have who to are not white, not middle class, not educated, go through 24-7. So I remember one it, to understand prostitution. Um, one of my eye-opening experiences was an interview up in Vancouver, Canada, where I was trying to be empathetic and to show that I was tracking the conversation with this woman, and she was describing something to me, and I said uh, about what it was like. Um, just spending an evening soliciting tricks. And I said, it must feel like every hour is like a day. And I thought that showed that I understood the extreme conditions and what it does to consciousness when mm. you're under life-threatening stress. And she looked at me and said, no, it's more like every minute oh. is an hour. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> That's well, just, uh, that, it's just, uh, if you listen carefully, you start to understand the circumstances that people are living under, that yeah. none of us, if we had a choice... You know, to get back to this idea of empowerment, and it, the argument that it's better inside a hotel than out on the street, there are many errors in that analysis. And one of them, one of the biggest ones is, and, and these sex worker advocate folks do not say this most of the time, but if you look carefully at what they're writing and information they're exchanging among themselves, they are very clear that the most dangerous kind of prostitution is indoors, not necessarily in a hotel where if she's lucky she can scream and bang on the wall or get out, but to any kind of private location that is known and controlled by the sex buyer. That's the most dangerous of all, and it's mm. always inside. That's where women get murdered. Mm. Um, it, and it's often, I've heard this too, it's often safer to, to prostitute on the street where you can reject an intoxicated customer 
her sex buyer because they're the most dangerous of all. Wow. You can see how drunk or high they are and say, oh, I got something else to do, bye. And your friend who's watching your back will take down a license number. Okay. And that makes it safer. In legal brothels in Nevada, women are not permitted to reject any sex buyer, no matter how drunk, how abusive. Um, and so they are routinely with very, very drunk Johns. And despite the fact that there might be, for example, in Amsterdam, three panic buttons in a room. How, what does that tell you about the nature of this job, by the way? Mm. Three panic buttons, one by the bed, one by the door, one by the bathroom. Why do you have to have three panic buttons to do a half-hour job? It's because it's, it's often lethal. Wow. But, but if a John is physically overpowering someone, she's not able to reach a panic button. You know, this is part of the right. cover narrative that in legal or regulated venues, you can actually make someone safe. It's not possible. Wow. Yeah, I remember uh, when I remember when one of these uh, window owners in Amsterdam was giving me a tour of all of the windows that he owned. And he took me inside of one and he, he pointed out and, you know, now, of course, the bed didn't have any sheets or a pillow on it because those could obviously be used as murder devices um, to suffocate right. somebody or strangle somebody. So, so it was a little awkward him showing me the bed with, you know, it was just like basically a mattress. But then he points to the panic alarm and he was really pr proud of the panic alarm because his main point was how safe it was to be in this, you know, which is, which tells you something in and of itself that they would have to make that a big point. Like, you know, yeah. when you, when you go to work at any other place, like, you know, when I, you know, when I we hire people at Exodus cry, we're not going walking around you know, helping them feel how safe it is. Like, oh, and here we have an armed guard, and here we have a panic alarm. You know, it was just, it's, you know, <laughs> right. nobody's thinking about those things. But in prostitution, you have to think about them. So he was making this big point. And, but then I said, you know, but what about the girl two weeks ago, two doors down from here, who in your window was stabbed to death? You know, and he goes, uh, let me think about that one for a minute and I'll get back to you. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's a very tragic situation. But it's also, you know, quite comical, this notion that, that prostitution is safe. It's, it's, um, it's obviously not safe. And, um, you know, so I think the, the point that, that you're highlighting about the difference between outdoor and indoor prostitution is something that we really need to hear because it's one of the most common things I think that I hear from people in terms of creating an exception. So everyone mm -hmm. has an exception in their mind that they can think about that, uh, that keeps them in the overarching cover narrative, which allows prostitution to continue to flourish in our world. And so one of the most common exceptions that I hear, so, so people say, okay, sure, trafficking is bad and these aspects of prostitution is bad, but then there's the, you know, the girl in the, in the, uh, high end escorting in the, you know, nice hotel with the satin sheets, all of that. And I, what you're saying is that not only is that situation also dangerous, but in fact, it's more dangerous that's a, yeah, that's a it, really interesting insight. Yeah, oftentimes it's more dangerous, and 
Well, there's one study that I know of, one research study that shows somewhat lesser violence in a limited number of indoor venues compared to outdoor. The level, overall level of violence was horrifying. It was something like, well, there's only 50% attempted rapes indoors and there's 80% outdoors. Are you, that's not exactly an advertisement Jeez. for safety. You know, so even the right. data that's quoted is, you have to parse it out. I mean, right. above all, I mean, underneath these narratives is a philosophy of life and politics that ultimately everything is for sale, and we better mm. face it. Everything is commodified. Human beings are also for sale, more or less, depending on how they're packaged as high-end versus street. It's, it's The underlying philosophy is the problem. There's some things that should not be for sale. Right. And the argument that I've heard br- brought up often is, well... It's just like sweatshop labor. People hate their jobs at McDonald's. They're not paid enough. They have an abusive boss. And in response to that, I say there are some similarities. It's pretty awful when people are working in garment factories in Bangladesh under horrifying health conditions and awful pay and oftentimes um, abuse from bosses. However, it's still not the same as prostitution, where you have um, somebody your grandfather's age coming on your face. Mm -hmm. That's not quite the same as an obnoxious boss at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. As horrifying, as unpleasant as McDonald's is, for many employees and how many labor standards they break. Um, it's a really, right. it's a it's really good distinction. Same. It's not the same as prostitution. So we can throw that sweatshop labor is the same as prostitution argument or cover narrative. It's really another cover narrative that, you know, we're all being sold. So um, it's unpleasant for all of us. So get over it. Right. That's something that Benji and I hit on a couple of podcast episodes back oh, did- where we were talking about, but, but I love hearing you talk about it from your perspective. We were comparing, okay, well, flipping Mc- burgers at McDonald's or stocking the shelves at Walmart. People don't like to do that, but it's different because, well, difference. you don't have to dissociate in order to do that. You know, you're not right. going to come out with almost 70% PTSD from that right. Walmart job. Walmart workers aren't winding up with... PTSD rates at, you know, 70%. You right. Know, like, so right. let's... <laughs> and, and so it came down to understanding the prostitution experience. And yeah. I think you probably understand that from your research of thousands upon thousands of women, maybe better than anyone else. But can you kind of talk a little bit more about, about your understanding of what, at the essence... Of prostitution, whether it's high class or street, yeah, um, sure. getting down to the nitty gritty of and that. Let me, and let me let me just ask one. Let me just go back to in that same vein. 
I want to go back to this point of that you mentioned because it's it's a term that I had never really heard before, and it's the the term you mentioned, Melissa, the betrayal of the self. So when you work in these um, indoor contexts, higher end contexts, um, you have to pretend like you're enjoying this man, his fantasies. Um, the sexual acts that he's requiring of you, so on and so forth. But in pretending, there's a betrayal of the self. That is a really powerful and interesting concept. It's one, I'll say, that also doesn't um, discriminate between trafficking versus non-trafficking victim. Mm -hmm. Whether you're trafficked or not trafficked, um, if you're in those situations, it's, it's absurd to it's absurd to imply uh, that these women, whether they're a college student working their way through college the easy way by making a little money on the side, whether that be the notion of prostitution you're imagining, or the person being, you know, um, homeless, yeah, like on the street, homeless off the street, or the person who's been trafficked and you know beaten, abducted, whatever, well, let, let, regardless let of the situation. Let me try and answer that. And yeah. there's there's another expression that they, it, they that all says but they all have to do. They all are required to do these same mental gymnastics, and I think that's a really huge point. So if you could develop that more and even help yeah. us understand the impact of yeah. that, because Melissa, let me just say this last thing because uh, this is something that I also hear quite frequently is, well, you know, she, I. I so she's she's a college student. She's empowered. She's she's paying her way through college. She's making money. But regardless of the, that notion of prostitution, what you mentioned is something that she will still have to experience. And so my question for you is: first of all, if you could help us further Which develop that concept, is going to concept. affect her future career. And then, okay. And then, yeah. So then, how will that impact her if, on a mental, emotional, yeah. sociological? future level yeah. as well as her future career if you could speak into that and really help us yeah. understand that because um these the, the media is obsessed with this image of women in prostitution as the sexy attractive college girl who loves her life in prostitution is making this money on the side and you know that's a version we should all just you know at some level kind of okay well let me get back to that but let me first say about okay. this betrayal of the self and what is yeah. prostitution Prostitution is coerced sex, a sex act that is coerced by the need for money. Mm. The money coerces the sex. If there was no money there, there would not be any prostitution. Okay, that's... So you have to understand that to start with. It, it, prostitution... Uh, uh, proponents like to say it's the exchange of sex for something she wants. It's an even-up exchange. And they don't even look at the vast inequality between the person selling sex, the, the person who's being used for sex, and the person buying them. It's kind of like saying about slavery, well, it was ex an exchange of cotton picking for food, huh? Mm. <laughs> it's a, it's the same it's the same logic, but we are so blown away by the media 
uh, presentations of what prostitution is that uh, we get confused. Yeah. We get confused. So, and today, there's, they're not even using the word prostitution. You know that. It's called, they're, they're calling using it sex the word, work. Uh, they've gone beyond that. They want to spice it up a little bit. It's called sugaring. Oh. There's a new noun and wow. verb being used for it. It comes off of those sugar daddy dating oh. sites. Wow. And those sugar daddy dating sites are a place to learn about who has the power, who has the money, and who doesn't. I don't care if she's a college student, a law graduate, whatever. If there wasn't money there, she wouldn't be there. That's a and something really like ninety-five. Ninety-five percent of everybody in prostitution wants to get out, but they need the money. And this is not going to decrease in the near future, as we have services for vulnerable people being slashed. And instead of being called protections, the cover narrative is that they're entitlements, like welfare queens entitled to a payment, which is so racist and so offensive. But a lot of people are thinking that way. These are basic protections to keep people from dying, to give them a house and a basic amount of money for food, you know. Anyway, I just... I'm trying that's a, to that's the, co- the coercion, the money serving as the coercive element, I think mm-hmm. is a, is a really important point that you bring up. Um, and so again, just and that's in the Palermo Protocol, an international crime uh, law that says it doesn't matter if she quote unquote consented. It's a way better law than anything we've got in the U.S. because it says consent is irrelevant. And that's what they're using against us abolitionists here in the U.S. They're saying, well, she consented. It's voluntary. That's a great, <laughs> and, that's a great point. But there are international laws that are more progressive than where we're at. You know, it, just to drive the point home a little more, I've been doing research on brothels run by the Nazis in the Second World War. And to this day, there's one great guy, his name is Robert Sommer, a German, some of whose research has been translated into English. And to this day, it's hard for Sommer and others to get testimony from the last surviving survivors of the Holocaust regarding who was in those Nazi brothels, what happened to them, etc. And why is that that people are having a difficult time, either witnesses or victims, talking about it? Mm. It's because women who prostituted in order to not starve to death or in order not to be worked to death are being accused of volunteering to the Nazis. Oh, wow. Hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just on the tip of my brain because I've been immersed in it. But, I mean, you see how outrageous it is that, well, she consented, so blah, blah, blah. She likes it. It's her choice. Right. Right. No, the conditions that would have given her a choice were not present when it's almost life and death. 
because that's that's the narrative I think that we've constructed in our society, and that's the narrative that uh, allows us to uh, accept an industry as violent and exploitative as prostitution is if we can somehow imagine that she's chosen it. So as long as we can imagine that she's chosen this at some level, then everything else is okay. And we don't want to hear about anything else. And what I love about your research and this whole conversation that we've been having is that regardless of how you define whether or not a person has chosen it, which is this whole other issue, um, what somebody experiences once they're in prostitution um, can be described as nothing less than exploitative, um, violent, and a betrayal a form, of the self, and a betrayal of the self. So let's go back to that for a second. Because betrayal of when, her deepest values about herself and culture, and we see that you brought up the issue of post-traumatic stress disorder. Even if somebody, and most people think this, anybody who says, "Oh my God, I've got to get money for tuition," I'm going to. Uh, get on one of these dating sites, I'll see 20 guys, I'll make two, $3,000, and that'll be that. Let's say they decide to do that, and they manage to get out after a few months. I, I get emails all the time from women who've been out for 10, 15, 20 years and say, nobody understands what I'm dealing with. After 15, 20 years, um, the healing, the the scars are so profound. Because because of the fact that prostitution operates in such a way that requires a person to betray themselves. Yes, it does. Yeah. And so... It's like Patty Hearst in some ways. You know, people... People said Patty Hearst was just a scammer or something like that and completely failed to understand that the trauma that she went through when she was imprisoned by some terrorists, um, that trauma caused her whole world to turn upside down. Her whole world. And in the case of prostitution, so it's... Even even the person who, in the seemingly most innocuous situation possible, the one that most I most often hear referred to, you know, the one we're talking about where the person goes, well, she's a college student and she can, you know, take a few clients on the side. And after all, she's this, you know, sexually liberated young woman, you know, and 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 pay through her, herself through who's through school that way. Even the person in that situation. Is, who, who is still at some level going to find herself in a situation where now she has to service a man, strange man, with his whatever desires that he has, and at some level, even in that situation, are not going to align with her desires, her preferences. I mean, we know that there's this unique chemistry to um, attraction and sensuality and arousal. And those aren't things that just can be bought. You can't just, it's like, you know, the, the old saying, you can't buy me love. Like you can't, you can't just manufacture desire for somebody or their perverted fantasy that they want to have she with has you. to suppress so, her revulsion and disgust. In order and to do that. she has to smile 
and act like she likes it in a way that convinces him. Or else he will go online on a chat board and slam her for not being uh, a good escort. And that will decrease her income. It will co- it, anybody who thinks that these women are not pimped is naive. The sex trade generates so much money that pimps know how they know how to hide. They're still there. The highest, the the highest quote high end prostitution. And uh, there's a woman who's. Uh, I would suggest that people look at the Survivors View blog on pre because women are writing about those experiences of how most more than anything they hate servicing the Johns who demand that they tell them they're turned on, they like it, um, it's a fun time, uh, tell me about your day, honey. I mean, they, they want to get inside the women's head as a further means of dominating them. Wow. And it has to be understood as that. It's a form of mental domination. And in order to get paid a lot, you have to be a very, very, all all prostitution is acting. But to get paid more, um, you, you be can't be super loaded on drugs or alcohol. You can't be burned out and miserable and despairing. You have to be able to put on a really good act and you have to look a certain way or and then be a so, certain. And then so because prostitution functions and operates in this capacity that forces the girls and women who are in it to routinely betray themselves in order to uh, pretend like they are attracted to this man, like they enjoy what's happening, all of that. Can you talk about the emotional spiritual, physical, psychological toll that that has on a woman. And again, irrespective of who that, whether she's a college student or a trafficking victim, just that dynamic alone of having to pretend, how does that affect affect a person? Yes. I I don't want to forget to mention that one of the first times I started understanding the depths of the betrayal was um, at a conference where a Yakima elder, they're, they're in uh, present-day Oregon and Washington, southern Washington, northern Oregon. The Yakima uh, people were t- presenting information at this conference, and this elder was listening to what I was saying about prostitution, and he said, oh, it's self-cannibalization. And I'm like, oh, my God, what a... Let me try and wrap my head around that. He was saying prostitution is self-cannibalization. And it's a really... It's it goes a little. It's a little more intense metaphor no, than self betrayal. Because it, it's. I think that that it, that's another conceptually great way to describe, um, somewhat metaphorically, what actually happens, which is a person actually has to consume themselves in order right. to be in order to be present in these situations. They literally that's have right. to consume all that's in them. 
that is revolted by this man, revolted by his experiences at some level would never you know, willingly participate in these things apart from the money that's coercing these type of actions. And so, so as that consumption of self takes place, that betrayal of the self, what, what's the, what's the effect of that on, on a human well, level? Well, to survive for that, that, which as, as we can, as we all know, because even the smallest betrayal of the self feels awful to us. I mean, uh, any anybody listening to this has been in a staff meeting, a conference, uh, a church meeting where they experience and feel uh, some betrayal of their basic values or who they are. So to have your entire self being packaged and offered for sale and participating, it's the participation in that practice that's so harmful. Mm-hmm. Melissa, I've heard, I've, heard, um, I've heard Catherine McKinnon talk about prostitution as a, a practice of serial rape. And a lot of what I'm hearing you describe and a lot of what we've just been talking about, to me, sounds like it could be described as rape. And I know in our culture, we've all collectively said rape is horrible. It's something that's not accepted. But, I mean, how would you... Well, yes, but don't forget the laws. I mean, the laws on rape are a very good example of what we're up against for a long, long time. And even today in courtrooms, judges and juries will ask, show me the bruises to show you resisted. And if a woman... I remember one case where a woman who was being raped begged the rapist to use a condom so she wouldn't get HIV. That was used against her Mm. as indication of consent. And what's used as an indication of consent in prostitution so that people don't call it serial rape, rather they call it consent, What's used against her is the money. Mm-hmm. The fact that wow. she's paid, in many people's eyes, erases rape, domestic violence, battering, verbal abuse that's so horrible, I, I don't think I can say it on the air, that combines extreme racism with extreme sexism. That's, uh, you can imagine what that is. When somebody is raping you and simultaneously saying absolutely horrible things, like, you like it, you blah, blah, and he names her in the most racist and in the most um, sexist language we can possibly imagine. Um, wow. Survivors have called it that. Uh, Lila, they've called it paid rape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what does it do psychologically to someone? It, the dissociation is helpful in the moment, just the way dissociation is a elaborate escape and avoidance strategy that's used by people when they're being raped by their fathers or stepfathers or mother's boyfriends as kids. 
dissoci- it, it permits psychological survival. <clears throat> and some people are very, very good at it, and some people need to take drugs in order to do a kind of chemical dissociation. But the, and the dissociation really helps in prostitution. And some people would even say, and I actually think it is almost a job requirement in prostitution. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, a Dutch researcher once called dissociation a professional attitude. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. To this us, it seemed, c- it seemed that the fact that a person in prostitution has to dissociate in order to do the job, that just in and of itself, I feel like, aside from kind of all the research on all the other abuses within it, the PTSD and the you know traumatic brain injury and all of that other stuff, just the one thing that they have to dissociate, to me, is the biggest evidence of the inherent harm of prostitution and why we need to abolish this as just as an industry and that it's not a job like any other job how do you how do you when when people talk about prostitution as a job and i know that that's one of the big uh arguments that's made for the legalization of prostitution around the world and decriminalization but how do you uh address people who talk about prostitution as a job um well, that attitude that it's work comes originally from pimps and sex buyers. I always uh, think of the, oh, I think he was <clears throat> Canadian guy who was buying women in Thailand, extremely poor women in Thailand, who's families were hungry and he said i'm putting food on her plate she'd starve to death unless she hoard Hmm. now that's a kind of darwinian a very ominous darwinian view of the world it's like i'm higher up in the order of predation and she's lower down so i'm helping her survive by giving in to what I want, you know, it's it's like the problem with the whole sex work analysis or prostitution as a job analysis is it accepts the notion that somebody has the right to buy another person to use them for sex rather than looking at it from a victim-centered perspective which says everyone deserves housing and food and health care. Right. It's a, it's a human right. When we talk about it as a human right, we could say it's a human right not to be in prostitution, unlike the Amnesty International approach, which we have already talked about on this show, which is saying that you know prostitution, the job, it's a, it's a right. People have to do what they want to do uh, with their body. I mean, you can give them a few points, which I always do, in order to get them listening to me if I'm talking to people who think that, which is, yes, there is a horrible stigma against people in prostitution. There really is. 
people look down on them. Even people in NGOs who are trying to help women get out of prostitution. Uh, uh, a German NGO recently said to a survivor friend of mine, who had just finished telling the story of how she ended up in a German legal brothel at age 40, first time in. This member of this NGO, which is <clears throat> helps women get out, said a staff member said, you were old enough to know better mm. to her. Oh, wow. It was devastating. It was devastating to her. Oh, devastating. Wow. Oh, wow. And it's victim-blaming of the worst kind. You know, wow. I actually got in a a moderately heated argument with a woman who said that, who wow. had, who, who told me that she could stay out. You know, one of the ways, pe- one of the things people do is, is they divide, they divide themselves, they separate themselves from from people in prostitution. It, it's it's especially painful to me to see women do this, to see women fail to understand that every one of us is a disaster away from prostitution. That vulnerability. Yes. That it, prostitution exists because it's an exploitation of vulnerability and... And any one of us could be exposed to the myriad of vulnerabilities that allows a woman to end up in prostitution. Right, and we're 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 the same. We are exactly the same as women that are in prostitution. They simply have less privilege and more vulnerability than most of the people in our social circles. And so, Melissa, we're talking about. In this podcast, we're talking about this whole uh, idea that is promoted by the pro-sex work movement, that prostitution, that yes, human trafficking is wrong, that's awful, we need to do away with it, but there's an aspect and a dimension of prostitution, and some would actually say is the majority of people in the commercial sex industry and prostitution, that is consensual, that it is... Um, that it's an issue of choice. It's an issue of personal independence. It's an issue of empowerment, sexual liberation, and even some will call it human rights. And they'll say, and people often who they hold up to support this notion of so-called empowered prostitution is the college student working her way through college. So, so we're talking about all this, you know, this this notion of prostitution that's out there, and what you're helping us unpack is the deeper truth about prostitution. How is it actually experienced, um, irregardless of whether the person was trafficked or is, or is a college student, regardless of how the person got in the system, what every person in prostitution will experience, the commonalities between them, um, is what we're talking about. And you mentioned this thing of the betrayal of the self is there anything else? Well, actually, let me just uh, give you just tell you give you share one story with you, and I want want to get your commentary and feedback on it. But but uh, I was I was debating semi debating one of these uh, women who was a part who was in prostitution and a part of this pro sex work movement, 
And, um, and, and I asked her, I said, Do, has there ever been an instance where a man violated the sexual boundaries that you had set in place uh, prior to the prostitution engagement? And she said, well, don't all men violate, you know, and it was a really revealing statement because she was conceding the fact that, well, yes, of course, of course he was violating the boundaries. So here's somebody who was, again, living inside this cover narrative, advocating for it, promoting it, but, it, but, but willingly acknowledging the sexual violation, the sexual abuse. Let's go so and far as to call it rape. Well, it's commonplace in prostitution. About, what you're, it's, it's, that's a very important point, and it, it illustrates something that I've felt for many, many years, which is that you can't come into the anti-trafficking field and be an effective abolitionist if you're in a little bubble that only addresses trafficking mm -hmm. as if it exists separate from sexism, racism, and poverty, and geographic vulnerability due to catastrophic climate change, which is happening right now and affecting prostitution and trafficking. So let's take this example of, she said, don't all men do that. Well, there's a lot of truth to that, and we have to acknowledge it. For example, a woman in the U.S. said, I might as well prostitute because my boss demands that I fuck him every month. Anyway, I might as well get paid more prostituting than wow. I get paid in this secretarial job. That's what she's talking wow. about. And she's right. Wow. Or a woman in Lusaka, Zambia, who says, um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I'm a voluntary prostitute. I said, my jaw dropped, and I said, oh, oh, explain that to me. And she said, well, I'm volunteering to prostitute because unless I do X number of blowjobs, I can't buy a sack of mealy meal and feed my kids tonight. Mm. What I hear you saying, Melissa, is that <clears throat> the work of abolition is so much bigger and so much broader than this little narrow kind of hole that we've put it in regarding anti-trafficking and that there's so much more that we need to be looking at and working on. Well, I, I don't, I mean, that's, I don't want people to be overwhelmed. I just want, I'm just hoping that people will take the trouble to think about this and understand how, all people's struggles about extreme inequality in the world, the inequality that happens between men and women, the inequality that happens between people of different ethnicities, and the inequality that happens uh, because one person makes much more money somehow than another person, those in and the inequality in the prostitution transaction these things are all connected. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's I why think people, that, yeah. I think in a way what you're saying is empowering and, and taking it a step back oh, and good. making it a little bit broader and, and empowering for people who are involved in not just anti-trafficking or 
working against prostitution specifically, but working in all these different areas. If you're working against poverty, if you're working in the area of homelessness, if you're working, you know, I mean, just in, in so many different areas, we're all, we're all working together to the same end, really, even though it may not seem like it. And so somebody who's listening and may not have an opportunity to volunteer with Exodus Cry or an anti-trafficking organization or someone who's doing outreach to women on the streets, but they're able to help out with their local homeless outreach that their church does. I mean, that in a way, they're also contributing. They're also helping. And so I think it was really, really meaningful for you to help us take a step back. And I also, I also, if someone's volunteering at a homeless shelter, three quarters of the women they are encountering are either starting into prostitution in order to pay their rent or they're in prostitution for survival for quite a while if they've been homeless for a while. The other thing I think... They're just unidentified victims of trafficking or prostitution. The other thing, Melissa, that I feel like you're helping us do is frame the battle that we're facing. And and that's, you know, that's something that we talked about when we first started this podcast. And we're trying to, to recast, reframe the fight to incorporate... Uh, a focus on the larger commercial sex industry as the core problem here and the the social lubricating factors that contribute towards its existence as opposed to just thinking that you know it's about this we have to save kids right right we're going to have a home for kids don't talk to us about anything else that's you know the anti-trafficking there's so many and we love homes for kids we love the organizations that are doing that but there's we love a larger home for kids and we love homes for those kids yes. when they grow up and, and are we love still homes for them when they grow out. up as well great point and there's but there's so what we're what we're addressing though is is the larger systemic problem that i feel like many people are naive to even in the even in the trafficking movement is we 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 don't understand um you know, the degree to which trafficking and all of the problems that come with that are rooted in this larger problem that is just as egregious, which is called the existence of the global commercial sex industry. And that in order to make any traction on fighting trafficking, it's going to have to be done by addressing the larger system that it happens within, which is called the global commercial sex industry. Many people are either naive to that or violently oppose that idea. So I think that what you're doing is helping us to frame this it, the larger injustice here the larger system here to see it more clearly and to understand how we as caring empathetic abolitionists and humans need to be engaged in this fight yeah and i sure encourage you in terms of making the big connections to look at the issue of what it means well, how how boys are taught to be a man you know people like bob jensen at University of Texas, Austin, and people like Peter Qualitine in Seattle has just, um, there's an in-depth article that just came out on his program for arrested sex buyers, which mm-hmm. isn't one hour, two hours, six hours, one day. It's eight weeks long. 
Wow. And he has a chance to get into these guys' heads. And he it's brilliant. And it's described in this piece that just came it just came out in the perfect place, Gentleman's Quarterly. Mm-hmm. Now, Melissa... Do you have a copy of that, or do you want me to say no, it? It's on please, our website. Yeah, get we us can, a copy of that. I think you emailed it to me, Melissa. I can share it. And, okay. Um, yeah. You've got to interview you know, him, too. Mm-hmm. Melissa, you've, you've talked with just scores and scores and scores of people currently in prostitution, as well as survivors, those have come out of it. And John's. And you've talked with John's, and you have just so much um, insight into this whole issue. Last year, uh, Amnesty International conducted their own research of prostitution, and they came away with the conclusion that this is something we should promote around the world. It was alarming to us at Exodus Cry, because as we're tapping into your research, and, and, and discovering the deeper truths about prostitution, the ways that it functions and operates as a form of violence and exploitation, regardless of how the person got there. Um, Amnesty International comes along and with one broad stroke um, obscures and sanitizes all the violence and harm that has been um, clearly uh, given attention to through your years of international research as well as others, to recast prostitution as something positive that should be promoted to the most defenseless uh poverty-stricken, vulnerable women around the world. Um, and uh, and they, they were so proud of themselves that they were actually toasting with champagne glasses in their offices and posting pictures on social media for this position that they had adopted to fully decriminalize every aspect of prostitution around the world. Um, I, we were just so awestruck by that, so grieved by that. And as one who's been in this field and and heard the stories of so many people on every side for so long, I was wondering if you could speak into this conclusion that Amnesty International came to. Because right after that, one of the one of the most deplorable articles I've ever read, a, a Christian theological scholar wrote an article called um, why the anti-trafficking movement ignores the voice of sex workers. And basically what he had done is fully buy into the Kool-Aid of the pro-sex work movement narrative and mm. then just basically parroted their position, but through the lens of his own personal experiences. Uh, and at the end of his article, he then even says something to the notion of well, prostitution can be something beautiful, a service to handicapped people and um, therapeutic. It was just, it was so repulsive, repugnant. Um, and and so I, we see these things happening. We see this New York Times article coming out. We see Amnesty International's position. We even see people in the faith community adopting these ridiculous and absurd notions of prostitution and mm-hmm. how it's paving the way for whole countries mm-hmm. to legalize and fully decriminalize prostitution. It's just, it's, it's actually quite surreal what's happening. But I'm wondering from your perspective, as somebody who's been researching this for m- more than two decades, how do you explain these developments and what is your response to those to those trends that are oh. happening well there's a lot of surrealism out there today isn't there? <laughs> oh boy almost, i just fell out of my chair when i read this article by this self-proclaimed christian scholar and human trafficking that, expert that's a, theologian. that's a good one i didn't uh, please send that to me i had i did not know about that I'd yeah like you it probably it. make you fall out of your chair too 
Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, you've kind of heard it all now. Well, I've heard for many, many, many years, as you have, that there are, uh, that the sex trade includes all faiths, <laughs> not just all colors and yeah. educational levels, but there are plenty of Christian men buying sex and using tons of pornography, which is pictures of prostitution, which means they are uh, they are using someone er- for their own sexual pleasure that's being uh, coerced into having sex for money and having it filmed, which is a much more devastating experience mm. than just having sex for money. Once mm. it's filmed, even if you get out, you know that your kids could see it on the Internet someday, your boss could, your, hus- your future husband could. So, But to get back to Amnesty International, um, oh, it was a terrible blow. It was so depressing. And yet... Um, I think it's a wake-up call that this is a very serious battle, and partly because we've made some inroads into shutting down the sex trade with the Nordic model laws, which are aimed explicitly at dismantling the sex trade. Something I admire about the Swedes so much is they didn't pull any punches when they wrote that law that arrests sex buyers, arrests pimps and traffickers. And by the way, the best way to understand trafficking is it is pimping, pure and simple. Um, So they arrest sex buyers, they arrest pimps and traffickers, and they decriminalize and do not arrest women in pros- and men and trans people in prostitution, while at the same time offering them exit services. Now, that's a great law. And the Swedish government said, we understand that prostitution is a form of violence against women, and the Swedish government wants to end it. So here's what we're going to try. And it's just a fabulous law. It's, um, it's made Sweden the lowest... Uh, they have the lowest rate of trafficking in the European Union. Um, it's You don't shut down all of prostitution in 10 or 15 years. But the, the, the thing that's so impressive about the Swedes in terms of cultural education is they've done exactly what Exodus Cry is, is trying in part to do, which is to change the cultural climate and to change the cultural understanding of what the sex trade is. So you, we, we made these big advances. The French even passed a version of the Nordic model it's law. amazing. Yeah. Uh, it was incredible. So we had these big wins, and then coming back at us was uh, George Soros, who is the person funding uh, Amnesty International. Soros has been in favor of sex trade uh, access for men forever and a day. Um, and he has single-handedly funded many, many groups. 
But you know what? It's not just Amnesty International. It's World Health Organization mm-hmm. and UN AIDS. Yeah. Big, wow. big health organizations. And wow. along with Amnesty International and many other people, what they're doing, Amnesty in particular, hired a consultant to advise them on their policy of across-the-board decriminalization. Sometimes when people hear decriminalization, they assume it's just the prostituted person. No. When you hear decriminalization, you need to translate that cover narrative. Aren't you in favor of decriminalization? And, And the uninformed person says, well, it doesn't sound like a good idea to arrest a prostitute. Yeah, I'm in favor of decriminalization. What we need to say in the same sentence always is, are you in favor of decriminalizing pimps and traffickers? Because that's what they're suggesting we do. Mm-hmm. They're it's... suggesting we turn them into normal, everyday businessmen, just like the cell phone store down the street. Unbelievable. They're, yeah. So <clears throat> that's that's one of the ways that cover is established. I, I mean, I think people, another whole area people need to look into is the extent, because there's so much money in the sex trade, there's huge involvement of organized crime. They get involved in these things. Wow. You know whether it's the they're always they're always looking for money right that they right. can launder clean up right. whether it's the garbage industry in New York whether it's um, drug trade or whether it's prostitution so when prostitution is mainstreamed and normalized and pimps are decriminalized you've got. Uh, you end up with situations like in Amsterdam where they're now saying, we made a mistake. I do love that about the Dutch. They're saying that publicly again and again because it's 90% organized crime controlled. Pimps are running prostitution in Amsterdam, the legal sex trade. And the same in Germany. There's one organized crime expert, a guy named Manfred Paulus, who has said that 95% of all German legal prostitution is controlled by organized crime. And if you think about it, it's like just the way we say who wants to grow up and be a prostitute, not many girls. The parallel question is who wants to grow up and be a pimp? Not a lot of boys. Mm-hmm. So the ones that do become pimps uh, tend to be um, unusual men who are willing mm-hmm. to step into very, very abusive, exploitive circumstances. I think it's about the money, the Amnesty International wow. Uh, wow. win. I think it's essentially about the money and also this neoliberal idea that everything is for sale, and that's the normal state of affairs. We're all for sale. You you hear politicians saying, well, I was prostituted. You know what I mean? Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Wow. You know, no, you weren't. You right. might have been exploited, right. or you might have been misinterpreted, but no, you were not sold for sex. Right. I really appreciate what you're saying, Melissa, in the way that we're we're talking about um, this issue of of decriminalization and what that really means and the position of these huge organizations like Amnesty and UNAIDS and the battle, it really feels like there's this global battle that's raging right now in the nations of the earth where we're realizing that the current model of prostitution just isn't working. And we talk about Germany, we talk about the Netherlands, talk about all these different countries in Europe and around the world. And it seems like there's almost a deciding moment whether countries are going to go into the full decrim, decriminalization of the sex industry, or they're going to turn to the Nordic model, which is the abolitionist uh, model of law. And it's almost like history is just in the balance. And, and so it's so relevant right now to be having this discussion and to be um, you know, getting this message out, and so I really, uh, you know, appreciate your work. But how do you how do you feel about what's happening right now around the world? I mean, right now, this week, we have the Republic of Ireland debating the Nordic model. We've recently, like you said, had France kind of convert over in Canada. I know you were really involved in what was happening in Canada, where they they went from decriminalization to uh, then the the Supreme Court battle, and then now the uh, towards the Nordic model. So how do you feel about what's going on around the world right now? Well, I think there are many struggles for equality and human rights going on, and our struggle for the rights of human beings to live without prostituting is what we're after. I... I think it quickly turns to <clears throat> how we can keep the struggle very, very local. We have to understand, as you say, Lila, we have to understand the Republic of Ireland's attempts to pass Nordic model laws and <clears throat> other struggles that are going on, as in Canada, but we have to bring it home to our home communities. And what that means is looking first, looking at anything locally that would inch us toward the Nordic model. The perfect example of this is a prosecutor, Val Ritchie, in Seattle, who is working closely with both survivors and with longtime activists in order to affect legal policy. What they're doing in Se what they've done in Seattle is they have reversed arrests. Twenty five years ago, three quarters of everybody arresting for soliciting prostitution were women. Today they're arresting eighty percent sex buyers. Wow. That's that amazing. right there is a step toward the Nordic model. Mm -hmm. And believe me, Val Ritchie understands that. And he says that. You know, there are victims and perpetrators in this crime, and I'm not arresting the victims. Local law enforcement can do that. So reaching out to law enforcement in your community, finding out how they understand prostitution, <clears throat> 
making sure that any police officer who exploits a person in prostitution by extracting sex acts in exchange for non-arrest, that person needs to be fired, not put on temporary leave with pay, Mm. which is what's happening in most parts of the U.S. when a cop um, uses a woman in prostitution. Find out what the local steps are. Somebody once told me in Las Vegas, if you want to understand the sex trade, look at zoning laws at the at the local city council level. <clears throat> and I think she was right. This was somebody in the police force who attended every Las Vegas zoning meeting in the uh, in the, in the uh, city. So I I guess what I would say is keep it very local. Um, and, and get involved and active politically and put on do local education. Don't just try to set up uh, a home for prostituting adolescents. Think bigger than that as well. There's there are urgent needs for sure for funding of existing agencies. You know, learn about how to run an agency first by visiting them and learning from them, and then think about uh, how you can support them. Because many of these agencies, you know, they're yeah, there's there's urgent needs on many fronts, but we got to keep the agencies that are out there up and running. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, so- last. So this has been uh, a great conversation. Melissa, thanks again so much for joining us. Um, it feels in some ways, even as we're you know, digging deeper into this conversation, that we're still um, in some ways just scratching the surface. So we'd love to have you uh, back again at some point. Um, but in closing up and wrapping up this conversation... Um, I want to get your final thoughts on how we should understand prostitution, um, because like we've been saying, you know, the the world out there, um, the society at large has this notion of prostitution as um, as you know, somehow somewhat glamorous, somewhat empowering. Um, we're told by the pro sex work, work movement that you know these women are absolutely not victims. That's like the worst thing that could happen that could be is that you would cast somebody as ever being a victim they're invulnerable um they're not sexually exploited they're sexually liberated they're not oppressed they're empowered um so it's this whole it's this whole narrative that's been constructed by the by the pro-sex work movement by the commercial sex industry that has then been um uh it, it has been embraced by media by hollywood and as a result, that has been accepted um, on the part of society. And so, you know, we're told all these things about prostitution um, that presented in this certain light. Um, Melissa, in just kind of wrapping up our time together, how should we understand prostitution? Um, I think we need to understand it as a specific series of acts that happen to people. I mean, it's, it's the question for me is very much like, 
how should we understand domestic violence? Mm. That's probably the best model I can use in terms of what happens and the struggle to get people to take it seriously, Mm. which still goes on. People are still dismissing domestic violence. And right now, domestic violence shelters and rape crisis shelters are truly panicked because of the threat to defund them, Mm. which is absolutely a horror in my mind. But I think we have to understand it as a system of of harm that is beneficial to some people. It's beneficial to Johns because they can dominate and exploit and get turned on by controlling a woman for their own private masturbation fantasy, Mm. which it's so circular, isn't it? I mean, the masturbation fantasy has developed from pornography, as many Johns tell us, and then they want to act it out again with another woman in prostitution. So we have to first understand it, as you said earlier, from the victim's perspective. What happens to her? What does that feel like emotionally? And and we have to listen very, very carefully to survivors of prostitution, not the ones who are paid to speak out by the sex trade pimps, but the ones who exited and are getting on with their lives. That's the that's the uh, micro level. At the big level, we have to see how systems of prostitution and the sex trade fit in with a growing and vast divide between people who have privilege and people who are very poor. We've never experienced it so severely in the U.S. as we are right now. And mm. we, I think it's important for people to look at the very big picture. We have to understand that we're a part of all of that, and prostitution is a result of that. I mm. learned so much about that by uh, participating with the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition in a study of trafficked women in Minnesota, and you see how taking away people's land, disrespecting their culture and their ethnicity um, causes Mm. despair, drug addiction, domestic violence, and prostitution, Mm. you know? So I guess I would say it's all connected, and if people can see that, that's going to help us move forward then we know kind of what's coming next a little more. Well, thank you so much for yeah. that insight. That's sure. that's so helpful. And um, I know that there are many listeners out there who, like myself, um, your heart has been broken over a story that you heard about a, a woman who was trafficked. I remember the first story that I heard about a, a, a girl named Debbie, who was just 15 years old, abducted from in front of her own house, um, brought to an apartment, gang raped, and then prostituted out of a dog kennel for the next 40 days before she was rescued. And after learning about a story like that and others, my heart was just so broken that I thought, 
I cannot turn a blind eye to this injustice. And um, But in our journey of addressing this issue, I think it's so important that we more deeply educate ourselves about all the issues and how they connect together. And I cannot think of a better resource to get educated than Melissa Farley's website, prostitutionresearch.com. And so I want to encourage you guys again, if your heart has been broken by this issue, um, you know, you saw the movie Taken, or you saw Nefarious, or you read a story online or a news story came out. Um, don't let it end there. Don't think that, don't assume that you know everything there is to know now that you saw Taken. Like we really, the, the way that the anti-trafficking movement is going to become successful in our mission is by continuing to mature and by continuing to grow in a deeper understanding of these issues. And so- And we've I, had an impact. We have had an impact. Just yesterday, I saw a story, you probably saw this too, we're about to tweet it out, about a flight attendant on Alaska Airlines who noticed a man in a business suit, quite nicely dressed, and a young woman with him, poorly dressed, kind of greasy hair, uncomfortable, distressed looking, and this flight attendant has learned from all the work we've been doing, you and us. And it's it's phenomenal. Wow. They, um, this flight attendant what happened? Slipped this gir- told this girl, go to the bathroom. She slipped the girl a note in the bathroom and said, are you okay? And the girl slipped the note back saying, no, I'm not. I need help. And this flight attendant, who used her intuition, who had tremendous courage, they contacted the cops. The cops were on the ground when the plane landed, and they arrested this guy, Mm. who was indeed a trafficker. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So this is, you know, this wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. This is because of all the work all of us are doing. So congratulations to you. Congratulations to your activist listeners and Amen. That's so good. See you around. Oh, yeah, thank you. That's isn't that's it? a good note to leave mm-hmm. off on because um, yeah. it is important to rejoice and celebrate those moments where clearly there has been a, a, a breakthrough and um, and you know so I w- so again I just want to encourage all of our listeners the the information is there the research has been done. And so we have no excuse not to further educate ourselves so we can become more mature in our understanding and more effective in our work. So please, let's all go and educate ourselves through um, the prostitution uh, research, uh, dot com website, Melissa Farley's website um, that has been built out over the course of the last two decades and um, continue to lock arms together to become more unified in our voice and to continue to, to grow and expand in the effectiveness of our efforts to shift this cover narrative in our generation and to pave the way um, legislatively and socially for the abolition of the commercial sex industry. Thank you all so much for tuning into this podcast, and uh, we'll look forward to connecting again with you next week. So talk to you soon. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
To learn more about how you can be involved, go to exoduscry.com and follow us on social media. If you have questions or comments, email us at feedback at exoduscry.com. We'd love to hear from you.